the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I must confess my voice is a little gravelly, uh, but we're going to work our way through these uh, two hours uh, the best that I can and try not to offend you. Uh, with my voice. I'll try to speak less forcefully, and that might help with longevity. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Looking forward to a conversation with Douglas Estes. He's the author of Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. Now, I have to confess that we had actually had a different guest uh, for which I was prepared uh, to do the interview today, and it wasn't until uh, this morning, mid-morning, that I learned that that guest had food poisoning and wasn't going to be able to join us, but Mr. Estes was available. Now, this is a book I had asked James to uh, arrange an interview for, so it wasn't a complete surprise. But what has been a complete surprise is just how how good the book is. Uh, it's titled Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. And he uh, approaches the subject from a perspective Uh, and vantage point that I think will be very helpful. It's not just whether or not you should be on the Internet, but he goes much deeper than that, looking forward to technology and the impact it is likely to have, not just in terms of practical use, uh, but philosophically how we should approach technology as it emerges in the future. And he does an excellent job of helping us to think about it all in light of one's Christian faith, of what we know to be true about ourselves as people, as the human race, and the technology that's coming. So he's looking ahead. We're not just talking about how much time kids should spend on a uh, a phone or screen time, but much larger philosophical questions uh, that he approaches in a, uh, a very uh, practical and I think timely way. So I'm looking forward to the conversation, but I have to admit, I didn't have time to finish the book. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping we can still give you a, a glimpse into its content. And I would, uh, based on what I've read so far, I would definitely recommend the book for anyone who is looking forward to the Christian faith in a world of limitless technology that is continuing to emerge and in the, uh, the decades to come in ways that I think it's difficult for us to even imagine. So uh, Doug... Douglas Estes will be my guest later this hour. And then at 5 o'clock, we're going to talk with Gregory Wrightstone. He was a guest here on the program. It's been many months ago now, maybe as long ago as a year. He's the author of Inconvenient Facts, an excellent book that takes on some of the uh, climate hysteria and uh, looks at it from a scientific perspective, making a distinction between uh, models that predict certain things in the future as opposed to scientists who hold alternate views and are credible credentialed scientists. Anyway, he's written an an article on Oregon's climate action plan. That's the plan that has divided the uh, Oregon legislature and uh, sent some GOP senators, uh, from what I understand, according to an article in Willamette Week, to Idaho to sit this one out. We're going to talk with him about his uh, piece on what the Oregon climate action plan would actually do, what it proposes to do, what problem it, it, it 
uh, purports to address and the cost to Oregonians, which explains why there are some GOP senators who are refusing to return to the Senate chamber. So we'll get into all of that. He'll join us at the five o'clock hour. So a lot to talk about. First, some of the uh, day's headlines. A spokesman for Iran's foreign ministry said in a tweet on Tuesday that the new U.S. sanctions that target Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khomeini and other officials to close any channel for diplomacy between the two countries forever. The kind of hyperbole one has come to expect now among uh, world leaders. President Trump signed an executive order on Monday issuing hard-hitting financial sanctions against the Supreme Leader and his associates. The U.S. and Iran have uh, seen tensions increase exponentially in the past, at least rhetorically, in the past few weeks after uh, an initial U.S. sanction squeeze that Washington said led to the attacks on two oil tankers in the Strait of Hormuz. The situation became increasingly dire last week after Tehran admitted to downing a $100 million U.S. Navy drone. President Trump said the sanctions will deny the Supreme Leader and the Supreme Leader's office and those closely affiliated with him and the office access to key financial resources and support. More on that a bit later in the program. Ahead of the first Democratic primary presidential debates on Wednesday and Thursday, the president has renewed his attacks on Joe Biden, the front runner thus far, this time questioning why former President Barack Obama hasn't endorsed his former vice president. In a new interview with The Hill, the president uh, wondered if there was a big secret as to why Obama has not backed Biden, how he doesn't get President Obama to endorse him. There has to be some reason why he's uh, not endorsing him, end quote. Well, President Trump told The Hill he was the vice president. They seem to have gotten along. President Obama not endorsing him is rather a big secret, end quote. Well, trying to stir up, stir things up ahead of the uh, debate in which uh, Vice President, former Vice President Biden will most certainly be the target of all of his opponents, 10 appearing in the debate tomorrow, the remaining 10 the following day. The White House has reportedly moved to prevent uh, Counselor Kellyanne Conway from testifying before Congress about allegations of violations of the Hatch Act. Uh, The Washington Post reported yesterday the House Oversight Committee Anticipating a lack of cooperation from Conway in the White House plans to vote tomorrow on a subpoena to force her testimony. In an interview with Fox and Friends on Monday, she pushed back against the finding that she violated the Hatch Act and dismissed a recommendation that she be fired as an attempt to silence her and prevent her from working toward President Trump's reelection. And Chicago police released hundreds of files and nearly 70 hours of video footage on Monday from the investigation into Jesse Smollett's claim back in January that he was attacked by two men, an allegation that police later characterized as a hoax. Uh, the same can be said for the two men he alleged uh, were responsible for the attack. In one of the videos, police body cam footage showed Smollett with his face blurred, wearing a white rope that he told detectives his attackers looped around his neck. When one of the officers asked Smollett if he wanted to take the rope off his neck, the 37-year-old did while stating, yeah, I do. I just wanted you to see it. Uh, The release of the footage marked the latest chapter in a story that began with Smollett's allegations that he was the victim of a racist and homophobic attack. He eventually was arrested on charges that he lied to police. The prosecutors later dismissed the charges. Uh, And there has been some back and forth on whether or not he could face those charges once again. But it seems from what I've been following that that is a possibility. And family and friends of missing Connecticut mother of five, Jennifer Dulos, 
on Monday, uh, countered a claim from her estranged husband's lawyer that the author was deeply troubled and rejected any suggestion that she was faking her disappearance in a plot similar to the 2015 cinematic thriller Gone Girl. In a Fox News interview on Friday, lawyer Norm Pattis said his client uh, was emotional, tired, distraught over the exhausting ordeal and disappearance of his estranged wife. He said Jennifer Dulos had a troubled past, describing her as a writer who wrote a manuscript similar to Gone Girl, a thriller that later became a hit in Hollywood. In response, Carrie Luft, a spokeswoman for the family and friends of the missing mother, said, This is not fiction or a movie. This is real life, as experienced every single day by Jennifer's five young children, her family, and her friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we'll talk with Douglas Estes, a great book, Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. Taking a look at, uh, again, some of the uh, the day's headlines, Mexico has deployed almost 15,000 soldiers and National Guard in the north of the country to stem the flow of illegal immigration across the border into the United States, the head of the Mexican Army said on Monday. And the U.S. Supreme Court refused on Monday to rule on a case challenging President Trump's 25 percent tariffs on steel imports into the U.S., that was imposed last year. The decision will leave in place the U.S. Court of International Trade's ruling from March that allowed the president's tariffs. And the Supreme Court on Monday ruled 5-4 that a federal law allowing a gun conviction related to a crime of violence was too vague. The case involved a pair of men who were convicted on several felony robbery charges, but were also convicted under another federal statute that required significant mandatory minimum sentences for a crime of violence. And on Monday, Project Veritas released a video report featuring testimony from a Google whistleblower along with leaked documents and undercover footage that suggests that the most influential search engine in the world is actively promoting an agenda when it comes to news and politically and ideologically charged information. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver says the league no longer has any team owners. Instead, it will refer to owners as governor or alternate governor for a part owner. And a British appeals court on Monday reversed a previous ruling that would have forced a mentally disabled woman to abort her child against both her wishes and those of her mother. And on this day in 1876, Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer and his 7th Cavalry were wiped out by Sioux and Cheyenne Indians in the Battle of the Little Bighorn in Montana. And on this day in 1947, the diary of a young girl, a personal journal, journal rather, of Anne Frank, a German-born Jewish girl hiding with her family from the Nazis in Amsterdam during World War II, is first published. And on this day in 1950, war breaks out in Korea as forces from the Communist North invade the South. On this day in 1967, the Beatles perform and record their new song, All You Need Is Love, during the closing segment of Our World, the first ever live international telecast, which is carried by satellite from 14 countries. And finally, on this day in 2009, North Korea vows to enlarge its atomic arsenal and warns of a fire shower of nuclear retaliation in the event of a U.S. attack as the regime marks the 1950 outbreak of the Korean War. A lot of bluster then, a lot of bluster now. 
Well, the spokesperson for Iran's foreign ministry said in a tweet today that the new U.S. sanctions that target Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khomeini and other Iranian officials permanently end any chance of diplomacy between the countries, as if there was a chance of diplomacy between the countries. The comment was followed by Iranian President Rouhani, who mocked the White House and said it was afflicted by mental retardation. He spoke live in a televised address. The U.S. and Iran have been uh, have seen tensions rather exponentially in the past few weeks. Um, Abbas Mossavi took to Twitter to call out President Trump's latest decision to impose additional sanctions and said the sanctions means closing channels of diplomacy. Trump's desperate administration is destroying the established international mechanisms for maintaining world peace and security. Meanwhile, the Israeli prime minister uh, says that uh, and the ambassador says that the Iranians are utterly desperate given these latest round of sanctions. Meanwhile, John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor, later said the U.S. is open to negotiations. All Iran needs to do is walk through that open door. It was unclear if his response was in connection to Mousavi's uh, tweet. Meanwhile, President Trump, for his part, has been largely credited for his show of prudence while dealing with a hostile country. Trump appears hesitant to enter another hot war in the region, but said Monday that his restraint is not limitless. He also said the sanctions will deny the Supreme Leader and the Supreme Leader's office and those closely affiliated with him and the office access to key financial resources and support. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said the sanctions lock up literally billions of dollars more in assets. President Trump also said that he hopes Iran got the message after his administration escalated the sanctions against the regime following the downing of the U.S. drone while firing back at the country's leaders for declaring diplomacy between the two countries all but dead. Well, a $4.5 billion House bill that's aimed at providing more funding to migrant families detained at the U.S.-Mexico border is posing a challenge to Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's grip on her party, as its liberal faction argue that the bill doesn't go far enough while moderates worry that pushing for perfection will result in inaction at the border. Calls for more funding at the border come amid reports that children detained entering the U.S. from Mexico are being held under harsh conditions. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said on Monday that the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border is dire. He said HHS shelters are at capacity and the budget is not there to increase it unless Congress acts. And this requires an act of Congress. Customs and Border Protection Chief Operating Officer John Sanders told the Associated Press that Border Patrol stations are holding 15,000 people more than three times their maximum capacity. The $4.5 billion House bill aimed at alleviating circumstances like these is up for a vote on Tuesday. Well, at least it was. But liberal Democrats are calling for provisions to strengthen protections for migrant children and challenge the Trump administration's border policies. Democrats met on Capitol Hill with Hill rather with Pelosi late Monday, Freudian slip, to try and reach a compromise. The meeting reportedly eased some Democratic complaints. Asked before the meeting about her concerns that Democrats push for perfection. Uh, might result in inaction at the border. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called it a delicate situation. Afterwards, she appeared to have left the door open, saying, my main goal is to keep kids from dying before calling the humanitarian bill a short-term measure. But others weren't swayed. Representative Ilhan Omar uh, said after the meeting, we're, uh, we cannot continue to throw money at a dysfunctional system. 
We're not just asking for simple changes to be made into the bill, but to go back to the drawing board and really address this from a humanitarian issue. Well, the humanitarian issue threatens to erupt uh, to even more dire circumstances, threatening the lives of the very children she wants to protect. So addressing the humanitarian issue certainly is a stopgap measure. Uh, but the House and the Senate have had opportunity virtually every day that's been in session to address the larger issues uh, that continue to spiral out of control. Jessica Anderson uh, writes this. America is facing an unprecedented surge of in illegal immigration, but it seems House Democrats would rather block every proposed solution than act to fix the border. It's time for them to do their jobs. Our southern border is facing a massive wave of immigration, mostly comprised of migrants from Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras, seeking asylum in the United States. Yet Washington has refused for months to act in a sufficient way to help our law enforcement or provide reforms to the asylum process. Contrary to Democratic claims of a manufactured crisis, the current wave of migration is unprecedented. Our law enforcement agents at the border made 132,887 border apprehensions in May of this year, 330 percent higher than the same month in 2018 and 915 percent higher than 2017. We are on track for one million border apprehensions this year. That would be the largest year ever a year-over-year increase of illegal immigration in our nation's history. The alarm is sounding across the country. A Customs and Border Protection official recently stated, when we have 4,000 people in custody, we consider that high. When we have 6,000, we consider it a crisis. Right now, we have 19,000 people in custody. It's just off the charts. Well, former Homeland Security Chief Jay Johnson admitted we were in a crisis nearly three months ago. Even the liberal New York Times editorial board called for an emergency border funding package. So why haven't leaders acknowledged the emergency, even when four-fifths of the American people say the border is a crisis or serious problem? Well, we'll leave it an open question, a rhetorical question, while members of the House ponder whether or not to address it in any constructive and practical way. Coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Douglas Estes. His book is titled Braving the Future. It's a fascinating book on the subject. He's an associate professor of New Testament and practical theology at South University. He has um, pastored several churches, and he's a regular contributor to the science section of Christianity Today. His father was a NASA scientist, and that's a story of great interest in and of itself. He'll be joining us in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that technology is changing around us at a blistering pace. We're entering an era in which human bodies merge with devices. Corporations know everything about us, and artificial intelligence develops humans and even godlike potential. Douglas Estes equips Christians to thoughtfully and prayerfully prepare for a future of rapidly changing technology. In his latest book, Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Technology. Tech is coming so fast now that we can only imagine what it will bring. Well, in the book, he samples eight key technologies that will shape our future. He draws on scripture, Christian tradition, and a deep appreciation for science. He offers believers a grounded response to these rapid changes, and he also responds to transhumanism, the new philosophy emerging from Silicon Valley that promotes radical life extension through technology. With thoughtful questions and suggestions, he helps readers choose trust in God over fearful retreat and following Jesus over uncritical engagement with technology. 
Douglas Estes is uh, Associate Professor of New Testament and Practical Theology and Director of the um, MDiv program at South University, Columbia. He has pastored several churches and is the author of many books focusing on the intersection of text, church, and world. He is a regular contributor to the science section of Christianity Today and is the editor of Faith Life's Didactos, uh, Journal of Theological Education. And I am delighted to uh, welcome Douglas Estes to us, to our listening audience here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, great to be here today. I confided in my listeners uh, earlier that I had uh, actually had a, a, a different guest scheduled for today, and that guest had food poisoning. And when I learned that you were available, this, this was a book I wanted to, to talk with you about. I was uh, thrilled. Uh, but I didn't have a chance to read the entire book, but I was pleasantly surprised by the approach that you've taken on this subject. It's much uh, deeper and I think more relevant than I had anticipated. So I, first of all, congratulations on the book, and I appreciate so much your stepping in today. Sure, that's great. Happy to do it. Um, you um, start out in the introduction of the book, helping to give us some perspective of uh, looking back. We tend to look forward, but looking back on the lives of our grandparents and great grandparents and the issues that dominated their thinking and the way they viewed the world, not so much looking forward with optimism toward the future, but looking back with some trepidation based on the challenges they faced and how different life is here in the West for us today. Can you give our listeners just a little perspective on that? Sure. I think that when we talk about technology, it's very tempting to look at technology as it exists today with the challenges that we face today, like social media and the smartphone and, you know, how young should we let our children use an iPad at what age? Um, Yet at the same time, every generation um, since the beginning has struggled with the use of technology. It happens to be coming faster today than it has been in the past, but we've always struggled with technology. Society has always created new uh, forms and tool, uh, tools, new things that we can use and we can do, and so we're always questioning how do we use it, how do we approach this technology effectively, and we want to be able to bring it back to what God's Word says and our relationship with God so that we can understand how to use technology well. One of the things you point out that I think if we give it some thought would have to agree is that technology is moving so quickly, we can't even really anticipate what's uh, to come ahead. And this is not a book that uh, that suggests that we should not be engaged in technology, but you uh, are attempting to help us think more carefully, not only the practical aspects of the use of technology, but the philosophical questions that should accompany our understanding of its impact on the way we live and, and its use and our perspective on who God is and who we are as uh, the Scripture defines us. Yes, that's exactly right. One of the challenges that we do face in our world today in the 21st century uh, is that technology is coming at us faster than it ever has been. And it almost seems like technology is on an exponential curve upward. Yet at the same time, we as Christians must engage technology. We must understand it. We must discuss it. We must figure out how to use it. And I think that the sad thing is is that if we look back over the history of the last 100 years, Christians have been slower and slower to engage questions around technology. It doesn't mean that they haven't adopted it or used it, but we've been slow to, to really engage it in the same way that our forefathers did. You know, if you go back to uh, the printing press, the roads, all the other technological advances that came through. You know, Christians sometimes were the first to to grab hold of these uh, and to use them, especially for the proclamation of the gospel, encouraging people 
uh, around their world in their communities. And yet in the last hundred years, we've been slower to do that. And I'd like to see us quicken the pace, get a sense of what these technologies are and begin to discuss them in our churches and in our homes. One of the reasons for that is the fact that uh, technology as it will emerge into the future is that it's going to have much more profound impact uh, on our understanding, our, our worldview, our view of God, uh, and and uh, its meaning than previous generations could ever have imagined. Yes, although there's a but there. And the but, I would say, is if you look at, for example, radio versus television. Mm-hmm. Um, in a very simple example here, Christians were relatively quick to embrace radio, but they were much slower to embrace television. And... You know, one of the things we don't want to see happen as new technologies arrive is Christians be reticent to engage because they feel that in some way these things don't don't correspond with their faith or that maybe this is, you know, a sign of the end times or maybe this is, you know, God's plan for them. But as humanity increases until God comes back, you know, God has a plan for each of us to go into our communities, to share the gospel, to engage people. And the, the way that one of the main ways that we're going to be able to do that is through tools, which is technology in a sense. You write that the question at the heart of this book are how do we handle rapid technological change? How do we evaluate new tech in light of what the Bible teaches and what Jesus models for us? And how do we discern the best use of technology that has not yet even arrived? How do we remain faithful to God during a technological turning point in history? One of the the things that you address first off is the fact that many people of faith um, are thought to be against science or technology, um, but that that's not necessarily the case. Yes, I don't find that to be true. I think that Christians sometimes get a you know get depicted in the media as being against technology or you know kind of ludite you know in their approach. Mm-hmm. But I don't really find that to be the case. I mean, most Christians use technology and use technology to the same degree that anyone else does. But I think that the challenge sometimes comes in is that we are a little bit uh, hesitant sometimes when it comes to figuring out how to approach it. Like, we don't want to talk about it. And, and it's interesting in a way because sometimes pastors or other ministry leaders or Christian leaders, they'll will be talking or they'll, you know, text me or email me or something about technology. And it's interesting because we we get sort of myopic sometimes about various technology. Instead, if you look back in Scripture, Scripture doesn't actually really seem to, to critique technology at all. Um, people use technology. You know, there's no sermon uh, by Paul, you know, to the ch- church in Corinth or somewhere about using technology or not using technology. Um, they, they used it. They, they used it in the way that they felt like could glorify God. And so for us, we want to be critically thinking about it without being myopic or without overly focusing on things that are the negative, but asking the question, how can we use these tools these wonderful tools that, you know, human society has produced, how do we use these wonderful tools to glorify God in our lives and our community? At the same time, you write that many people of faith question some of the underlying ideas that are often promoted along with scientific achievement and technological advancement. When these ideas and their objections collide, popular culture can make it appear that Christians object to the science or the technology when, in fact, it's the underlying uh, ideas connected with them. Yes, that's right. I mean, this has been a perennial problem uh, since the dawn of time where there are things in society, such as technology, there's other examples, but there's things in society where the technology is in and of itself, like it's, it's, it's it, what's it, 
but then comes along with it a philosophy or an idea. And the problem that comes in is a lot of times either Christians are painted as being for or against the technology when it's really the philosophy that they're for or against, or sometimes it's just assumed that you will, you know, that you will agree with the philosophy even if you don't agree with the technology. I mean, let me see if I can give an example. Yeah. One time I was in um, the supermarket and I saw a child that was about three years old have their own iPad watching movies while the mom was all the way down the aisle picking out some, some food. And I thought it was very strange that the child was completely alone with only their iPad watching their movie, total glee on their face, you know. And I just thought, the thing is, is that there's the technology. The iPad is, is a wonderful instrument. But yet at the same time, the philosophy of our culture sometimes says, just use it with, with abandon. But the problem is, is that what we as Christians need to critique is the philosophy, which is, you know, do whatever you want, do whatever feels good, not, and just being simple here for a second, not critique the technology itself. With every tool, with every bit of technology, there's going to be a good way to use it and a bad way to use it. And in most cases, the critique comes in the philosophy that comes along with it rather than the technology itself. In fact, uh, you point out that one of the difficulties with discussing technology lies in the divide between the practical and the philosophical. And your book really focuses on some of the philosophical questions that will inform our understanding and use of technology as we anticipate it in the future uh, so that it it, it uh, does not have the capacity to change our understanding and view of God, for example, uh, we recognize the role that culture plays in introducing the technology and all of the things that are attendant to it. Yes, and I think that uh, one of the things that happens a lot is that we don't really know how to discuss technology sometimes. I like to joke, and I sort of started this joke earlier in the conversation, but I like to joke that you know sometimes ministry leaders, they'll text me or tweet me or email me. I don't really agree with you know all the uses of technology <laughs> in our culture, but it's ironic because they're doing it over text or over tweet mm-hmm. or, you know, over email. And, and the most important thing to me is, is that as we are figuring out how to use technology is that there, there is still, it still needs to come back to who God is. And, and that's what I do in my book is that as I talk about all these technologies, I talk about how the, the use of those technologies and the philosophy that comes with them can intersect and sometimes uh, damage the way people view God. And so I look at, you know, like you mentioned, I look at eight technologies. I also look at eight different um, views of the way that we understand who God is. You know, he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. You know, these kind of things that we think about as the character of God. And the character of God is the rock. It's the unchanging thing Mm -hmm. about who he is. And that is what we want to base everything on. So if culture changes, um, if technology changes, God is unchanging, and so we always want to come back to that rock, even in the midst of of rapid change. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Douglas Estes. He's an associate professor of New Testament. We're talking about his book, Braving the Future. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Douglas Estes. He's the author of 
Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Technology. Now, just before the break, you made the point that in the book, you look at eight key technologies that are going to shape our future. And it's pretty ominous when you think about these technologies and how they might develop. But let's talk about what these eight are, and then maybe we'll have time to look at a couple of them. Sure. Well, just as a list, uh, the ones I talk about are virtual reality, autonomous machines, gene editing, artificial intelligence, brain-computer interfaces, intelligent robots, nanotechnology, and cybernetics. And so some of those things sound kind of sci-fi, but they're the eight that I felt like were the most likely to come in the next 50, 100 years and have the biggest impact on human society. And that would make us question things about how we navigate in this world, who God is, these kind of questions that are of most importance. Yeah, and in fact, you list them in the the order that you think they're most likely to emerge as technologies that we will um, be confronted with. Uh, You talk about the fact that there is a view that natives of the early 20th century were people 1.0, but the 22nd century, everyone's going to get a full upgrade uh, to people 2.0 hardware, that there's going to be sort of an interface between who we are as people and the technology that we merge in ways that, again, sounds like sci-fi, um, but is very likely to be um, part of what we uh, will confront at some point in the future. How likely is it, do you think, that not just the technology is going to take us to that level, but that the philosophy around it uh, that has a direct um, implication to our a Christian worldview is uh, going to dominate the culture? Oh, well, I think that the in the latter half of your question, the the cult, the cultural issue will be huge because culture has always had a, a predominant philosophy that drives it. And so if you go back a couple hundred years ago, you have humanism, you have romanticism, you have all kinds of isms, you know, that dominate culture. And so every generation, at least as far back as we can track, has had these philosophies that are in uh, basically direct conflict or uh, at least uh, competition with Christianity. And and so you're definitely going to have that. And so whether it be transhumanism or some ism beyond that, uh, every time the world changes and we enter into a new era or a new phase, there's going to be those. But, and this is what I would say, even though we don't know to all the degree to what that's going to look like, the thing that Christians do not need to worry about is they do not need to worry about the fact that God does not change. And so Every generation has to figure out, okay, what is the ism, you know, whether it be humanism or transhumanism or whatever the ism is that's driving culture right now, bring it back to Scripture, bring it back to prayer, bring it back to who God is, um, and it is resolvable. It is solvable. Well, I appreciate your mentioning that because uh, we need to be reminded that God is not wringing his hands, surprised at just how far we've come and the technology we're developing and how is he going to relate to his people <laughs> under these circumstances. Um, you're right. God does not change and we can uh, we can trust him. But there, the challenge for us is to uh, view the world, ourselves and God in light of this technology in a way that is consistent with a biblical worldview that has been shared by every generation before us and into the future. That's right. And in fact, I was, when you were talking, I was reminded of an article that A.W. Tozer wrote in Christianity Today about 60 years ago. And in it, he tells people that with the dawn of the space age, that they really don't have a reason to fear. And the reason why they don't have a reason to fear 
is because it's very popular. Remember, this was 60 years ago. It's very popular for people to pull out their microscopes, and that's the word he used, to try to examine the signs of the times. But we don't want to, that's the wrong tool. We want to use telescopes because when the prophets were looking ahead at mm. Jesus coming into our world, they didn't use microscopes to look at their day-to-day culture. They used a telescope to look forward to what God was going to do. Likewise, the early apostles, they knew that God had it in control, and they were using telescopes looking forward to what God was going to do through the ages and eventually wrap everything up, as Revelation talks about. And so we need to get behind that telescope mentality, not the microscope mentality. Oh, I love that analogy. Let's just look at one of these technologies that's likely to emerge before some of the others, and that's virtual reality. We're already seeing that. Um, to some degree, but your chapter on virtual reality and the addiction to tech, walk us through that, how um, we should, as followers of Christ, uh, understand it, approach it, and, and live with it, if you will. Well, virtual reality is probably one of the first ones that we will encounter. I think all of these eight technologies are already here to some degree. Uh-huh. It's the issue of being invented versus mass uh, mass consumption of it. But virtual reality is one of the ones that mass consumption is, is rapidly coming. And a big part of that is that it is one of those technologies that can be escapist. Um, and so I talk about how even though we have escapist uh, opportunities with virtual reality, that we want to keep making sure that we are using this technology in a way that, you know, we can use it from time to time, but we're using it in a way ultimately that fits in with a biblical lifestyle. So Mm -hmm. it's just like any other communication type technology, whether it be radio or whether it be TV or whether it be internet or virtual reality. These are all similar technologies, similar tools, similar similar forms of communication that are on a, are basically on a line or a curve, if you will. And so they, they are more impactful in their ability to communicate yet at the same, and also frankly, to be addictive, but at the same time that they, they're not that different. We turn off the radio, we turn off the TV, we turn off uh, the internet, we turn off virtual reality. Of course, someone listening may say, but it's harder. <laughs> yes, it is, because it's more fat, more powerful technology. It's a more powerful form of communication. It's one thing to communicate by AM radio. It's a whole other thing to communicate uh, by virtual reality. But at the same time, when we think about the ways that we can use it constructively, and like the example I give um, in the book is that as a professor, You know, there are times when I want to try to help students visualize what it was like to live in the ancient world so they can get a sense of when, you know, when Paul is arguing these things. You know, Paul is not writing this as a scholar in a modern university setting. He's out in the open, you know, down in the Agora, and he's talking to people, he's preaching these things, and then later, you know, he's he's got these ideas that are, he's preached over and over again, these rhetorical ideas, and he's putting them down. Well, I could... I can say what I just said over the radio, and maybe a listener or two will kind of get a visual in their mind, but if I could bring all of your audience onto a virtual reality playing field and be able to present visually what it was like for Paul to do that, well, that's way, way more powerful. The lesson is that much more meaningful. Um, And so there are, with any technology, there are going to be good and bad uses of it. And as Christians, we want to be at the forefront of using technology well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the other technologies that I think may bring with it the, the, the potential for fear is the brain-computer interface. There's a fear that uh, this kind of interface might make it uh, possible for 
control of an individual contrary to their conscience or, or their will. Can you talk a little bit about brain-computer interfaces and what that technology might bring and how we might think about it? Yes. The brain-computer interface is a technology that encompasses a lot of sub-technologies, okay? But, but to make it simple, there's basically two aspects of it. There is, first of all, the, the communication between a human and a computer, Okay, and then also a computer integrating um, back with a human. Okay, so mostly what we're looking at right now is the first one is the human integrating with the computer. And so, again, it, it can seem to be a little bit scary in some ways, but all of these technologies are to a large extent on a continuum where they've already started and they're just getting better and better and better. So. When you look at like the internet, uh, if you go back to the 19, early 1990s and the internet seemed like, okay, it could be cool, but like, are people really going to do much with this? I mean, I remember, you know, when having those kind of conversations. Um, and yet now the internet has quote unquote taken over our whole life. Okay. So right now, um, and I use the example in my book, my grandparents, especially my great grandparents, I know nothing of them. Nothing has survived to them. There, there's nothing. There, there's no interface with any type of technology. But at this point in my life, my great grandchildren will not be able to say the same thing. They will be able to know everything about my life. If assuming my, you know, computer records, uh, you know, persevere until that time and my kids just don't throw them away, but probably they won't. And so they'll know a great deal about me. And that's because my, my life has already interfaced with the computer today. That brain-computer interface that's coming, it's just going to take that to the next level, just like the 90s Internet to the Internet today. Instead of me having to write out a letter, Dear Great Grandchildren, if you're reading this letter, I really hope that you will follow Jesus in your life, right? I have that letter, okay? And so and the difference will be is that my, my memories, all that I've done, maybe sermons, lectures that I've given, these sorts of things will be interfaced with a computer, and they will be there and visible if it works out, if the technology works out. They will be there and visible for my great-grandkids to be able to see. It will be a more powerful testimony than me writing it down. Yeah, I've yeah. been told that I had a great-grand-something uh, or other who was a minister, but I don't know. I, I have no way of knowing um, because they didn't preserve any of those records. Well, the prospects are fascinating. Once again, the book is titled Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the book and I hope you have a great evening. Good night. Thank you. You too. Great to be a part of the show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, according to Willamette Week, the missing Oregon uh, GOP senators are hiding out in Idaho with burner phones. Now, a lot's being said about their absence and the, the necessity of them being in the Oregon legislature in order to move forward with this uh, climate, um, Oregon Climate Action Plan. Um, but what is in the plan and what would compel these senators to risk the fines that they're being charged, risk being apprehended by law enforcement and all of the attendant um, punitive actions that are uh, being threatened, uh, these uh, these senators. Well, here to join us is Gregory Wrightstone. He is the author of 
Inconvenient Facts, a book we uh, reviewed some time ago. He's written an article on Oregon's climate action plan, and I think it helps put into perspective why these senators are willing to pay such a high price. And I also want to mention that uh, lawmakers in Salem, those who are actually there, are now saying they don't have enough votes to pass this thing, even if the senators were to come back. So anyway, uh, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Bad things going on with this bill for Oregon residents. Uh, it'll be it'll be expensive and painful if this thing gets passed, and well, very harmful to your to your local businesses. Mostly, you know what, Georgine? What I've noticed here for Oregon, this is a great example. It's it's really pitting the rural Oregonians mm-hmm. versus the, the urban. Uh, it's the urban people mostly, from what I can read, it's mostly Portland area that are pushing this green agenda. And it's strongly opposed by the rural areas of your state. Well, let's start with the chief architect, Representative Karen Power, who stated that failing to take action would make the planet as we know it uninhabitable. So if the Oregon legislature fails to pass this legislation, that's it for planet Earth. What is she basing her understanding of what's likely to happen uh, on, which you write about in your piece, Oregon Climate Action Plan, Economic Pain for Zero Benefits. What is she basing this brazen uh, overstatement on? Well, this is she's just parroting the, the uh, Alexander Ocasio-Ortiz line, the, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, it's what I call the company line on cl- climate change, that man is, is the primary agent of temperature changes, and it's leading to horrific uh, consequences in the future, but it's been a while since I've been on, but I'll just refresh you of, of my viewpoint on this. And I see an earth where rising temperatures, and we've, we've been in a warm warming trend for over 300 years. It started 200 years before we started adding significant CO2. I see rising temperatures and increasing CO2 leading to tremendously beneficial results for both the earth and humanity. And it ain't even close. I mean, they're really the, the planet and the human condition are thriving and prospering, uh, in part due to rising temperatures and increasing CO2. And what she's basing this on, people like her, are they're basing, they're predicting and speculating what might happen 30, 50, or 80 years in the future. And they're basing it on failed climate models that overpredict warming. Uh, so, you know, there. This is. Uh, I, I take great issue with with these consequences of of uh, rising temperatures and increasing CO2. Because if we look, Georgine, if we look back through history, through human history, over the last several thousand years, the previous warming periods, like we're in right now, all were strongly correlated to to an increasing beneficial human condition, and and there's a strong correlation between the the rise and fall of temperatures and the rise and fall of civilizations, uh, just opposite of what uh, she and the others are, are telling us. They're saying that warming temperatures will lead to catastrophic consequences, and that's just not what history tells us. It's the cold periods that are, that are actually horrific, uh, leading to famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation of the cold periods, not the warm ones. You write about the MAGIC simulator, the model for the assessment of greenhouse gas-induced climate change, developed by a science at the the National Center for Atmospheric Research under the funding of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency that estimates how much temperature rise would be averted globally uh, by various reductions in CO2, which puts into perspective what 
um, is being proposed in Oregon, what impact it would likely have uh, if it were, in fact, to be implemented. And essentially, it's less than zero. Well, it's not less than zero, but it's pretty darn close. It's about as close to zero as you can get. Because in Oregon, Oregon, um, the CO2 emissions for Oregon uh, comprise seven-tenths of one percent of of the entire U.S. emissions. And I, I use this magic simulator uh, to figure out what Oregon, if, if Oregon succeeded, uh, got the bill passed and were successful in reducing their emissions by the 80% targeted, it would lead to, uh, are you sitting down? It's a one one thousandth of a degree Fahrenheit uh, by, 20, by the year 2100. Um, it's beyond measurement. It's too small to measure. And, and this, is, this is really the overarching goal of what they're trying to do. Their goal for this Oregon Climate Action Plan is to alter the Earth's temperature, plain and simple. I know it sounds, when we state it like that, it sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this and we're going to alter the Earth's temperature. So what I did was use these models that they, they developed themselves, the EPA, to show just how tiny of, of, a, of a reduction in temperature increase would be that you would be causing using their own numbers. And I mean, I'll ask, I'll ask you, how, how many jobs is a one one thousandth of a degree Fahrenheit uh, difference in temperature? How many, how many jobs is that worth? Yeah. I'd say zero. That's a very good question. And let's talk about the cost of this legislation if it were to succeed in the Oregon legislature, the very thing the uh, GOP senators who've left the state are trying to, to prevent. Yeah, there wasn't. I, I I didn't get a really good read on that. The entire uh, 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 cost to this, because what this is going to do is accelerate each year that goes on uh, more carbon. This is a this is a cap and trade uh, deal, and uh, they they take away more incentives. What they're going to be doing is driving companies away from from emitting CO2. That's that's the goal here is to drive these companies away so they make it more expensive for them. And that's just going to drive up costs for for you and all of your listeners. Um, it'll it'll harm the businesses that are in the state. We've already seen at least one company we saw that's, that's cut 60 workers just this week uh, and stated that it was because of that. In fact, the CEO uh, of the company, which was Stimson Lumber, he called it uh, an assault on business by Oregon, uh, and that he also stated that he was laying them off. It's the cost of doing business in Oregon. Uh, so there, this was a lumber company, timber company. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this is going to do is make Oregon less competitive with the surrounding states that haven't implemented something like that. Why would you not uh, move across the state line? Uh, and, and uh, go to a state that doesn't impose these. You can have you can lower your production costs. Uh, you can uh, have your your employees uh, have lower cost of living. Uh, these are all good things. And if a, a company can't get up and walk away, uh, it probably would if it, if it would make sense. Now, your article is uh, can be found on your blog, Oregon Climate Action Plan: Economic Pain for Zero Benefits. How can our listeners access this? Because I think it's really worth reading to better understand. Uh, what we're talking about. Yeah, that's on my uh, uh, my webpage. It's got a lot of other good stuff there. It's inconvenientfacts.xyz. And, and Georgine, I've got a, a smartphone app that goes along with my book, Inconvenient Facts. And on that 
smartphone app for both Android and uh, Apple, I have that magic calculator uh, that you can look and plug in these numbers. It doesn't do it by state, but it does. You can plug in uh, various things to see what what changes in temperatures, various uh, things you could do for the United States and for the industrial world. So, and that that app's available. Uh, at both the Google Play and App Store for, uh, if you search for Inconvenient Facts. Excellent. Uh, but I, I go to inconvenientfacts.xyz. There's some great stuff. Check out the videos. And um, I heartily concur. There's some great stuff there. Hey, Gregory Wrightstone, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Really appreciate you bet. it. Thank you. Again, that's inconvenientfacts.xyz. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump signed an executive order yesterday that uh, uh, he said would fundamentally change the health care market. It would require hospitals to disclose in an easy-to-read format what patients pay out of pocket for the services they provide. Uh, The order with which the Department of Health and Human Services is going to implement is designed to improve consumer incentives to shop for care, which would expand the potential benefits of health savings accounts. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been hospitalized or uh, read the the bills, uh, the accounting of what uh, was charged and everything for someone who's been in the hospital, it is staggering to see the simplest little thing uh, has such a big cost associated with it. And this is designed to help... uh, People understand what they're actually paying. There's what the insurance pays, but then there's the out-of-pocket as well. Trump said in the grand foyer of the White House before signing this executive order that this is uh, truly big action. Some people say bigger than health care itself. Well, might be something of an overstatement, but the HHS under the order will also be required uh, or rather will require hospitals to provide more information to researchers and medical providers as a means to develop ways to cut costs. So that order that was assigned by the president, no Americans should be blindsided by bills they never agreed to, uh, the president said. He also said action was the, um, his action was the opposite of Obamacare because it expands consumer choice. Lack of price transparency has enriched industry giants greatly. Uh, there's frankly no rhyme or reason for what's been happening for so many years. The order won't take effect immediately, but commences rulemaking process. It always precedes these actions uh, being implemented. That will involve public comments. It will be interesting to see what comes uh, of that and the impact it might have on cost saving or shopping for more affordable health care options. And Stephanie Grisham, a top aide for First Lady Melania Trump, has been picked to replace Sarah Sanders Huckabee as White House Press Secretary, the First Lady announced today. Uh, Grisham, who developed a reputation as a fierce defender of the First Lady during her tenure as spokeswoman, will also become the White House Communications Director. Now, my understanding is she's going to attempt to do both. She's, uh, I am pleased to announce that Stephanie Grisham, 45, uh, will be the next uh, press secretary. Uh, the First Lady tweeted, she has been with us since 2015. Um, the president and I uh, think of no better person to serve the administration and our country. Excited to have Stephanie working for both sides of the White House. That seems a bit daunting to me, but that's um, the plan at this point. During a recent uh, interview, President Trump said a lot of people were angling for the gig. Asked about the possibility of choosing Grisham, the president said Stephanie is terrific. Uh, she joined the Trump campaign press operation back in 2015. 
Uh, Sanders announced her plans to step down as uh, White House press secretary earlier this month. On Tuesday, she tweeted that Grisham will be an incredible asset to the president and the country. I'm sad to leave the White House, but so happy to leave our team in such great hands, Sanders said. Stephanie will do a phenomenal job. Proud to have another mom and a great friend in this role. Well, Stephanie Grisham has accepted that role, but um, here's some things you might want to know about the White House press secretary that's about to assume that role, I think, as early as Monday. Prior to her appointment as the White House press secretary, she served as uh, the first lady's spokeswoman. Uh, She developed a reputation as a staunch defender of the first lady. She had earlier acted as deputy to then press secretary Sean Spicer before serving the first lady. She was one of the president's first staffers in Arizona in the 2016 campaign, according to the Arizona Republic. She set up his campaign stops around the state during the primary. Uh, Candidate Trump then tapped her to arrange his rallies across the U.S. After his victory, she was named special advisor for operations and served on the transition team. She's worked for other Republicans as well, I understand, before taking a leave of absence to join the Trump campaign in 2015. She worked as a spokesperson for Republicans in the Arizona House of Representatives, according to the local um, uh, paper. She had earlier worked as a spokeswoman for then-Arizona Attorney General Tom Horn. And in 2012, the single mom worked on Mitt Romney's unsuccessful campaign against former President Barack Obama. She is a single mom. She's raising two sons. When she joined the Trump campaign as a press aide in 2015, her eldest son, Curtis, was 18, and her youngest, Jake, was eight years old. Uh, She was uh, so dedicated to her job on the campaign that she once went five and a half months without seeing Uh, Her younger son, according to the outlet, short term, it's a small sacrifice to make, she says, speaking to political of the time away from her sons, because I do think he's uh, best for the country, I assume referring to Donald Trump. Well, she will be the next press secretary to take to the podium on behalf of the Trump administration. Two nights, five moderators, 20 candidates. The question is, can NBC pull off a debate a palooza, as some are calling it? The networks, the candidates and the Democratic Party have a lot of writing on the first debates of the 2020 primary process beginning Wednesday night. Now, I say the Democratic Party has a lot riding on it. This is just the early days. And of course, the candidates themselves, particularly those who have not resonated much in the polls, they're the ones who have a lot riding on this because whether or not they show up at the next debate or whether or not they are invited to the next debate is the um, is the pretty big deal. Now, NBC News, MSNBC, and Telmundo are hoping that months of planning are going to pay off when ten Democratic presidential candidates take to the stage tomorrow night in Miami, and that of course will be followed by ten more the following evening, Thursday night. The networks were awarded the first debate in the Democratic presidential primary process, a highly sought after prize considering the intense news interest in the 2020 field and the potential for massive ratings. Um, says um, the uh, Rashida Jones, senior VP specials uh, for NBC News and MSNBC, speaking to The Hollywood Reporter. I can tell you with 100 percent confidence that it's going well, she said, uh, regarding the, the planning process. It's a lot. We have a lot of candidates. It's a lot of content. There's a lot of issues. It should have been there are a lot of issues, but I'm quoting. No one knows exactly what the five moderators, Savannah Guthrie, Lester Holt, Chuck Todd, Rachel Maddow, and Jose Diaz-Balart, 
uh, will ask, not even the presidential campaigns. We were given no sense of the topic, said Jamal Rod, a communications director for Washington Governor Jay Inslee's campaign. There are segments, but there's no clear sense that these segments will be topic focused. Jones, who uh, uh, said hosting the first debate is a huge responsibility, kept her comments broad, saying my focus is how do we uh, do this in a way that's interesting and smart for the audience and that uh, takeaways and um, something for them to take away and to learn. Now, the challenge is when you have a limited amount of time, you have 10 candidates each vying for the public's attention. The time allotted to each of them is so incredibly brief Unless there is a catchy sound bite, it's going to be very difficult to learn much, to glean much from what they're saying. There is concern among the campaigns about how much speaking time, or rather how little speaking time, each of the 10 candidates will get. This is the same thing that we saw with the Republicans. There are more Democrats on the stage this time around, but it's the same challenge. 10 candidates will get over the course of the um, uh, the two-hour debate. Um very, very short. America's um, going to have very little time to pick up on where these people stand, but it's a start. And to winnow the numbers down is an important process that will uh, begin tomorrow night and continue on Thursday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Interesting AP NORC NORC poll. Democrats are most excited by experience in office. If you're looking for some sort of uh, fleece to tell you what's likely to happen, the sprawling Democratic presidential field, according to this poll, is incredibly diverse. But a new poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs finds Democrats give a collective shrug to gender, race and age as factors they're considering when supporting a candidate. Instead, Democratic registered voters are yearning for experience in elective office. A whopping 73 percent cited that as a quality that uh, would make them more excited about supporting a presidential candidate. Twenty five candidates are running for the uh, party's nomination and include several women, a Latino, multiple candidates of African and Asian uh, descent and a 37 year old gay man, less than half the age of the 76 year old early front runner, former Vice President Joe Biden. But most Democratic voters say these characteristics make no difference in their enthusiasm. According to this poll, a 150-year-old from Santa Ana, California, was once excited that the idea that Hillary Clinton would become the first female president. Now he just wants stability. I don't think it matters, referring to gender, uh, who, though he is Latino, also said he wouldn't be any more motivated to back a Latino for president. Instead, he cited experience in office as his top priority. Well, that would certainly um, eliminate some of uh, those running at the top of the ticket. Um, but not all. So anyway, four in 10 Democratic voters said they would be more excited about uh, voting for a woman for president. Thirty six percent said the same of a younger candidate. About a quarter were more excited at the idea of supporting a candidate who is black or Latino, while roughly two in 10 said that they'd be more excited to support an Asian candidate, a lesbian, gay or bisexual candidate. Um, still, there are differences in enthusiasm among Democratic voters Liberal and younger Democrats are more likely to be excited about voting for a candidate who is uh, of a minority status and a candidate who is a woman. It's not altogether surprising. And about half of Democratic women say they'd be more excited to support a female candidate compared with three in 10 Democratic men who say the same. 
Meanwhile, about eight in 10 Democratic voters, and we're talking about the Democrats as they anticipate the uh, start of the, f- the first debate tomorrow evening. Uh, eight in 10 Democratic voters say it wouldn't make any difference if a candidate were white or a male. Uh, Charles Cooper of Orlando, Florida, who's African-American, supports Biden, who served under President Obama. I'm an Obama guy, and he was the vice president. Cooper, who's 57, says he's not worried about the demographic characteristics of the next president. We're looking for a president who will unite the country. So and one of the things that uh, some find appealing with Joe Biden is the fact that he doesn't hate the Republicans. And um, that's a, a rare characteristic among at least some of the or within some of the rhetoric that we're hearing in the run up to the um, to the 2020 election. Uh, Here's another interesting uh, piece uh, from David French. America's most educated, engaged citizens are making politics worse. He writes, it turns out that the people who care the most about politics have the least understanding of their political opponents. The More in Common Project has just released the results of its latest deep dive into American polarization, and they make for a deep, discouraging read. It turns out that most Americans have fundamentally mistaken notions about their political opponents, consistently believing that they are substantially more extreme than they actually are. For example, Democrats are far less likely to support open borders, far more likely to support private ownership of firearms, and far more friendly to police than Republicans believe they are. Republicans support controlled immigration far more than Democrats believe, and an overwhelming majority believe that racism and sexism still exist in the United States. At one level, these conclusions are hardly surprising. After all, previous research has shown that Democrats and Republicans have wildly false notions of the demographic makeup of the opposing party because they are relying on the rhetoric of their leaders. Democrats think Republicans are older, richer, and more evangelical than they really are. Republicans think Democrats are more secular, black, and gay than they really are. And more broadly, surveys showing civic ignorance are squarely in the dogs bites man category. Spend nine seconds on Google and you can find depressing studies that show more than half of Americans can't name a single Supreme Court justice. And more Americans know that Randy Jackson was a judge on American Idol than know John Roberts is the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. But the more on in common survey is different and disturbing. It shows that political ignorance about the opposing party is driven by America's most engaged and at least on the left, most highly educated citizens. In other words, the more you pay attention to political media, the less likely you are to understand the true beliefs of your political opponents. And this is, I think, very significant. We might not have grounds to be quite as angry uh, and polarizing um, as we think we do or are. Anyway, the survey found that um, the most partisan, politically active Americans, a group we call the wings, have deeply distorted perceptions of the other side. Crucially, politically disengaged Americans were fully three times more accurate in their estimates of political opponents. They're relying on actual interactions with real people rather than the assessment of uh, politically motivated, oftentimes, and certainly not unbiased media accounts than those on the right and left edges of American politics. But not all media are created alike. If you follow the much derided, at least by the wings, broadcast news, you're likely Uh, got a more realistic view of the other side. If you follow the partisan outlets that often purport to tell the real story about your opponents, you're likely wildly wrong. Then there's the education factor. Better educated Republicans don't gain materially improved understanding of Democrats, while Democrats' knowledge of Republican beliefs actually get worse 
with every additional degree they earn. Moreover, this effect is so strong that Democrats without a high school diploma are three times more accurate than those with a postgraduate degree in their perception of Republicans spend any time reading online political commentary or hearing campus progressives describe American conservatives. And these findings make intuitive sense going all the way back to law school. He writes about his law school days. I consistently heard descriptions of Republicans, evangelicals and conservatives that made little sense to me. A lifelong Republican, evangelical and conservative, he writes. It was as if I was hearing Anthropologists describe primitive tribes from faraway places rather than my neighbors and fellow citizens. The problem is compounded by both social media and clickbait journalism. Perhaps the single best term to describe modern discourse was coined by Mother Jones writer Kevin Drum more than a decade ago. The term is nut picking, nut picking, and it refers to the practice of finding an extreme and outrageous member of a group and attempting to make them emblematic of the whole. Entire business models are built on nut picking and it's constantly justified as the practice of finding the person who will say what the other side really thinks. Or to use a um, phrase popular on parts of the left, the person who says the quiet part out loud. Now, I've seen this within the African-American community for years, nut picking. There are certain designated African-American leaders who are um, trotted out to represent the views of all African-Americans, whether or not they do. It's much easier. I would say it's the lazier approach to trying to understand an entire group and uh, is oftentimes highly distorted, not only because individuals can be motivated by self-interest and self-gratification, but uh, until you can prove that they actually represent a substantive uh, group of individuals, it seems a bit foolhardy to me. Then he offers two real examples, which I won't go into uh, right now, but uh, I think he makes a very important point. That perhaps will cause those of us who want to be thoughtful, and particularly those who are highly educated, to perhaps think again about whether or not our understanding of the other side is quite spot on, as we might imagine. Well, two news executives on a separate story tell Axios, which is an online source that caters primarily to younger types, um, tells Axios that a real Trump slump is hitting digital cable and more. Well, the shock factor around President Trump's unplanned announcements, staff departures, taunting tweets, erratic behavior is wearing off. And media companies are scrambling to find their next big moneymaker because the motivation oftentimes is what's going to um, raise money for us in that people are watching and supporting our advertisers. Well, driving the news, executives tell Axios that Trump fatigue is very real. Now, how will this play out in the 2020 election? We'll leave that an open question. Interest in political coverage overall is down, which is spurring investment in other beats like technology and the global economy. Democrats don't appear to be the lifeline media companies are hoping can fill the gap for diminished Trump interest. Executives say they expect this week's debate ratings to be nothing like the ratings for the 2016 Trump debates. We'll see what happens. Part of the problem is that the 2020 Democrats don't have a knockout media star to drive interest in the election to date. The Democrats' biggest media attraction has been Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who isn't running for president, thankfully. Other candidates split the spotlight in the crowded Democratic primary field. So that may change over time, but for now it's spread too thin. Digital demand for Trump-related content um, has dropped 29% between the first six months of the Trump presidency and the most recent six months, according to the data from traffic analytics company Parse LY. 
Evidence that Trump's social media star power was also beginning to wear off surfaced last month when Axios reported that his tweets were receiving less than half the engagement uh, that uh, they got when he first took office. I suppose part of that is just natural, but also the content may be wearing thin as well. Similar trends are happening in more traditional media settings as well. In March, New York Times COO Meredith uh, Levine uh, told Axios during a panel that the paper's subscription, Trump Bump, ended mid-2018. In December, media research uh, Moffat Nathanson found that live news networks' ratings were down in 10 to 20 percent range for the better part of 2018. Overall, the firm found that ratings around TV news coverage overall began to decline. Might be a number of explanations for that. And cable TV networks, which still reach a majority of Americans with political news coverage, began pulling back on Trump campaign rallies last uh, late last year because they weren't driving ratings, according to Politico. And for the media, it's all about the ratings. So kind of an interesting phenomenon. Trump slump. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. State Department is taking new steps to call out China as one of the world's worst violators of religious freedom. No big news there. It's been the case for quite some time. But last week, both Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Ambassador at Large for Religious Freedom Sam Brownback rebuked the world's most populous country because they're ramping up what he called its war on faith. Well, the latest report on international religious freedom from the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom released last Friday details on the status of religious liberty in every country in the world other than the United States. And they've elaborated on abuses in 10 countries in particular and of particular concern. They are Burma, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. Well, this year's report describes religious freedom issues in the country's uh, mainland Tibet, Macau, and Hong Kong, where long-suffering Christians have played a central role in recent pro-democracy protests. We talked about that just last week. It also includes a special section that's dedicated to China's malfeasance in Zhangjiang, which is the autonomous northwestern province where between 800,000 to 2 million uh, Uyghur Muslims have been detained and, according to the report, subjected to forced disappearance, torture, physical abuse, prolonged detention without trial because of their religious and ethnic background. Uh, we've seen increasing Chinese government abuse of believers for of nearly all faiths and from all parts of the mainland, said uh, the ambassador Brownback, who cited concerns over organ harvesting among Chinese prisoners of conscience, interference in Tibetan Buddhist and cultural practices and Christian persecution. They've increased their repression of Christians, shutting down churches and arresting adherents for their peaceful religious practices, he says. And to this we say to China, do not be mistaken. You will not win your war on faith. This will have consequences on your standing at home and around the world. Well, the uh, report largely aligned with the uh, recent report from the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. That's a separate and bipartisan commission that also assesses the world's worst violators of religious liberty. They say in their report, um, 
they say that their reports uh, are different from and complementary to the other report with the commission saying its scope and bent toward policy recommendations is unique and that whereas the United States State Department has to account for overall bilateral relationships in its reporting, uh, the other report has the independence and objectivity to call out violators wherever and whenever that may occur. Well, they named 28 countries that stand out as religious freedom offenders. That includes 16 countries that commission identified as tier one offenders. All 10 of the um, these offenders are included in the report, um, both reports uh, and their list of top tier offenders. Both reports echo the 2019 World Watch List rankings of countries where it's hardest to be a Christian, which bumped China from number 43 of the globe's worst Christian persecutors in 2018 to number 27 this year. While announcing the release of this report, um, the Secretary Pompeo described his personal faith as an evangelical Presbyterian, saying, I was a Sunday school teacher and a deacon at my church and decried the government and Governments, rather, and groups around the world that deny others the unalienable right to practice their beliefs. He highlighted a few instances of good news. He praised improvements in Uzbekistan, which is uh, for the first time uh, in more than a decade, no longer designated by the State Department as a country of particular concern. The Uzbek government recently passed a religious freedom roadmap, freed about 1,500 religious prisoners, loosened travel restrictions on 16,000 who'd been blacklisted for their religious affiliations. Pakistan, where Asia Bibi, a Christian charged with blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad and threatened with execution, was acquitted by the country's Supreme Court, cited as a win for religious freedom as well, along with Turkey, where Pastor Andrew Brunson was released last year after two years in prison on terrorism and espionage charges. So there was some... Uh, good news embedded in all of the not-so-good news. But even in these good news countries, there is still a long way to go. In Pakistan, more than 40 currently face life sentences and execution for the same charge leveled against uh, Asia Bibi. Another Christian woman condemned to death for blasphemy is currently imprisoned in her old cell. All three countries uh, lauded by Pompeo were listed among the worst offenders in both the IRF and the USCIRFP report. And according to the World Watch List, Pakistan is ranked number five in the world for Christian persecution. Uzbekistan comes in at number 17 and Turkey at 27. And though Pompeo said Uzbekistan no longer qualifies as a CPC, a country of particular concern, it's still um, a tier one offender and was named uh, special watch list along with um, uh, others uh, that we've already mentioned Do remember to pray for the persecuted church, uh, that they would uh, experience relief. And most importantly, according to their own requests, that they would be able to stand firm under such uh, significant oppression. Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Tim Shoemaker, the author of The Very Best Hands-On, Kind of Dangerous Family Devotions. Have you ever thought about establishing family devotions in your home? I know it can be rather daunting, especially if you have an age range that isn't necessarily compatible with everybody sitting around a table or sitting around the living room focusing on God's Word. Well, we're going to talk about what he calls in his uh, book that challenges families of all makeups uh, to taking on the, uh, the privilege of family devotions. In his book, The Very Best Hands-On, Kind of Dangerous Family Devotions. 
And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Samuel Gregg. Dr. Gregg is the author of Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. The book is published by Regnery, and it challenges us to take a longer view in the context within which we face the current challenges uh, that believers face um, in general, and I think the public in terms of uh, just simply reason face in particular. So that will be coming up on Thursday, and on Friday we plan to, well, take a look at the lighter side of the news, so we're looking forward to that. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.